Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, Episode 67. Today we'll be talking with Leonard Sherman. Len is the author of his new book out last week entitled, If You're in a Dogfight, Become a Cat, Strategies for Long-Term Growth. Len has some valuable insight and tips for businesses to consider in an ever-growing competitive landscape. Good morning, Shai. Good morning, Craig. Say, Shai, why do you think it's so hard for businesses to achieve and maintain a sustainable growth? You know, at the end of the day, I think it really comes down to keeping sight of your customer and the problem that your customer has that you're trying to solve. And I think businesses really lose touch with that when they have some success and they stop innovating. And in doing so, they lose their differentiation, which is, you know, what made them unique and special in the first place that attracted those customers. And so I think, you know, you need to have a process in place to continuously innovate, to continuously participate in that customer discovery. It's definitely a huge part of it. So many examples out there where companies just denied that there was competition almost. They didn't even plan their own obsolescence as far as their products or services. They just keep slogging along and trying to continue the marketplace. One of them comes to mind this week is the limited, you know, closing 250 stores. I recall where that was a real driving store series throughout the U.S., and just disappearing. We have so many examples of those over and over again. And then we have some that really look at obsoleting their own products and services and staying fresh and staying close to their customer and continuously moving with them and figuring out how do they play a new game. Yeah, the floor is littered with companies that haven't been able to adapt and grow. You know, Macy's, another Hallmark brand, and of course, all the countless business case studies. Kodak, of course, is universally associated with not getting in front of the innovation, ironically being very good at innovating in terms of product and patent, but not being able to leverage that by understanding what their customers really wanted to do with digital photography. It's amazing when when we look at the animal kingdom and how it adapts to a changing world and what we might call a changing market space, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. uh, One comes to mind and his name is Butch. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's actually two that come to mind. You know, obviously you're talking about uh, the two Russian blues that basically controlled my household, Butch (laughs) and his sister, uh, Lucy, Lulu, we call her. And, you know, it's funny because I know our guest today, Leonard Sherman, has written this book called If You're in a Dogfight, Become a Cat. And it it really drives that point home. And, you know, I think it's tongue in cheek there saying, hey, you know, you can't enter a dogfight. Your strategy can't be I'm just going to be another dog. You you know, how can you differentiate and how can you innovate? But I love if you think about, you know, the way cats think and the way they're able to train their owners or their servants, so to speak. They're really they really are experts at customer discovery. Yeah, customer discovery and and their environment, they adapt to change almost instantly. It's just a norm for them. And I think businesses really need to pay attention to some of these strategies. Yeah, I think that's right, Craig. And I think that that's why cats are such a great metaphor in this instance for long-term sustainability. I mean, they've been around for centuries. And I think that in this book, Leonard really approaches some things differently in the way he thinks about strategy and in the way he teaches strategy 
that just about any business owner can really learn from. Yeah, and with us today is Leonard Sherman. As we mentioned, he is the author of If You're in a Dogfight, Become a Cat, Strategies for Long-Term Growth. He is an executive in residence and adjunct professor of marketing and management at the Columbia Business School. Len has worked as a senior partner at Accenture, as a managing partner at J.D. Power & Associates, and as a partner at Booz Allen Hamilton. And prior to setting out into that world, he received his B.S. in Aeronautical Engineering, an M.S. in Transportation Systems, and a Ph.D. in Transportation Economics all from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Good morning, Len. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Good morning, and thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show, and congratulations on your brand new book. Uh, Well, thank you. I'm delighted it is now behind me. (laughs) Major efforts, I'm sure. I imagine the family's glad that you're back with them. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure about that. (laughs) (laughs) So what led up to writing this particular book? Well, I've been, for most of my career, a consultant and working with senior-level executives. And I I guess the the life of a consultant, you typically work with companies that are experiencing some kind of trouble, and particularly with growth or profits or both. And over 30-plus years, I observed a lot of kind of common challenges that companies experience in trying to kind of rekindle that energy and focus they had when they were a young and smaller company and growing rapidly to become this large enterprise. And so when I decided to move on from the business world into academia as kind of a second career for me, I decided to make growth strategy the focus of my work and my teaching and research and ultimately the book that came out this week. So uh, it was an opportunity to kind of reflect on all the common challenges and hopefully a set of solutions that get you through the mist to getting back a growing and prospering enterprise. It's quite an in-depth book, and we've enjoyed reading it. And looking at one of the areas that you worked on as far as the purpose of business, what should be the overarching purpose of any business? About 60 years ago, the late, great Peter Drucker came out with a very simple but very profound statement that I think gets right to the core of what every business should embrace as the reason that you're in business, the reason that you you work as hard as you do. And that is that the purpose of business should be to create a customer. Now, I've modified that a bit in my book to say, well, you don't just have to create a customer, you have to attract and retain customers and hopefully do so in a way that allows you to make profits and to continue to serve them in a way that makes them very satisfied and loyal customers. But basically, it all revolves around being entirely focused on your business is to attract and retain satisfied and loyal customers. And that actually is a little more controversial than it might seem because a lot of companies kind of confuse the outcome of what they're trying to achieve by being in business with what the purpose is. And that is to say, a lot of companies sort of start with, hey, I'm here to make a lot of money. I'm here to deliver tremendous shareholder value to my shareholders if you're a public company or a smaller company to maximize the returns to the owners of the business. That should be the outcome of all the things you're doing to attract and continually retain and increase the number of customers who come to you because you offer a superior purpose. So very important not to confuse what drives your business and what the purpose is with what the successful outcome hopefully will be. And all of businesses would love to have a successful outcome, but you know there are so many industries out there. Are there any bad industries? 
Well, this is another common misconception. And when I came to business school and teaching now at Columbia Business School, I was a little dismayed to find that one of the most common theories that are kind of drilled into these you know, young, aspiring MBA students hoping to become the you know, next generation business leaders is this notion that there are good and bad industries. There was a, a Harvard Business School professor 30 plus years ago who came out with a theory that said, you know, you could look at the whole range of industries that are out there and go through this five-step analysis. It's called the five forces framework and decide that some industries just inherently are hard to make an attractive profit or return because the industry has too much competition and customers are very fickle. So there's this kind of checklist that conveys this notion that some industries are inherently good and bad. I frankly think that's complete hogwash, <laughs> to be honest. And I really strongly advise all of my students and all the folks that I interact with that the only thing that makes a business bad is if you decide to enter an industry where a lot of the current players are struggling and kind of play by exactly the same rules that they are. And if you do that, I can guarantee you it's going to be a bad industry. But if you look at any number of industries that a lot of folks think are tough, bad industries like airlines or the wine industry or the eyeglass industry or the mattress industry or, you know, the, the list is endless. The players that are really shaking things up and growing and prospering and making the current players kind of even in worse shape than they were are folks who come in and play by a very different set of rules. So that would be companies like Southwest Airlines or JetBlue. In the wine industry, I have a, a great story about Yellowtail Wine, which came in and went from nothing to 8 million cases of wine in a couple of years. Warby Parker and eyeglasses, Casper in the mattress industry. The, the list is endless. So if you can figure out a better way to attract and retain customers than the current players, there's no such thing as a bad industry. Is there such a thing as bad timing, Len? Absolutely. <laughs> and I've learned this lesson as anyone who's tried to do what I'm advocating of finding great new ideas, always being the cat in a dogfight, the title of my book. A very wise man once told me many years ago something that I think is very true, that the only difference between a good idea and a great idea is timing. And that's one of the great challenges of coming up with the next new thing, that inherently when you're trying to play by a different set of rules, you encounter a greater set of risks than the much safer choice of doing the same old thing that everyone else is doing. And there's market acceptance risk. You know, customers just might not be ready for what you want to bring to market. And there's technical risk. The technology may not be good enough. And then there's kind of execution risk. You're trying to do things very differently. And sometimes that doesn't work the first time out of the box. So it is riskier. And part of the trick of finding that next new thing is waiting for the right time where all those pieces can be managed effectively. Len, along the lines of timing, when businesses have great ideas, how do they manage that timing of product to market? Well, there are some great examples of companies that have deliberately held products off the market until they were convinced they could overcome that market acceptance risk and technology risk and execution risk. So, for example... 
take Amazon, who's you know one of the, the great next new thing, constantly innovating companies. When they first launched the Kindle, the ebook reader that has become essentially the industry standard, that program was in development for seven years. And there already were e-readers on the market, but Jeff Bezos was convinced that technology wasn't good enough. And one of the reasons the products that already were on the market weren't going anywhere is they just weren't good enough and there weren't enough titles available. And and he took the effort painstakingly for seven years to get all the pieces of the puzzle to fit together. And from the time that properly time launch hit the market, it took off like a shot. Another example might be Apple, who everyone hopes they're going to come up with the next game-changing idea. It's not trivial to come up with a game-changing idea, and each of those great products that propelled Apple to become the most valuable company in the world, iPod, iPhone, iPad, and the like, were, again, five to seven years in development before coming to market. And where do some of these great ideas come from? The simplest answer is from keeping your eyes and ears open. I mean, basically, any successful product all came from a very simple kind of humble beginning, which is some innovator, some entrepreneur, some average Joe or Jane, just in their everyday experience of observing and using products and watching other people, figured out that there were certain jobs that consumers wanted to get done in their lives that weren't very well satisfied by any of the products on the market. So that simple statement lies at the core of every great new product, whether it's Uber or Airbnb or Spanx or Netflix or Casper Mattress. Every one of these were, and I've talked to the entrepreneurs who launched these kinds of products, and it almost always starts with, I just was frustrated. I just didn't think I could get the kind of product or service that I wanted, so I decided to build the company to do what I wanted. And it's obvious you have to make sure that there are enough other people that are experiencing the same kinds of pain points. In the cases of the companies I just mentioned, Netflix, Uber, there were millions of people that had those same problems. So the simplest answer is keep your eyes and ears open all the time. That's where the opportunities lie. We're reading over the last few months, poor Volkswagen, who once was a great company, probably still is, but boy, did they take it hard. And what makes or breaks a great brand? Well, in my book, I point to three characteristics of any strong brand. First and foremost is a brand has to deliver a clear and compelling brand promise. What does your brand stand for? When someone hears your brand name or thinks of your company, What's the first thing that comes to mind? What's the compelling value proposition that your company delivers? The second thing is developing a strong sense of mutual trust that your customers and loyal customers trust that you will deliver that brand promise consistently. And the company in turn has to trust that their customers will remain loyal as long as this mutual admiration society you know, works on behalf of the brand. And the third is strong brands actually develop this, I call it symbolic identity. People identify themselves with your brand. So let's take an example of a really strong brand, BMW. Uh, Everyone knows BMW stands for the ultimate driving machine. That's been their tagline for as long as memory serves. That's their brand promise. 
And customers just trust that every new model BMW brings to market is going to uphold that tradition. And people who become customers of BMW actually identify with this sort of sense of excellence and the statement it makes about them as individuals to be associated with such a strong brand. So those are the three pieces of the puzzle that you have to put together in building a strong brand. Let me take the flip side of what it takes to build a strong brand and share an example or two of what you don't want to do. What's what's the fastest way to destroy a, a brand? Because <laughs> that you want to avoid like the plague. And I think the worst thing you can do if you've been effective enough and fortunate enough to build a strong brand is to break that brand promise that you made with your consumers. If your behaviors and the products and services you deliver to the marketplace no longer uphold what the brand has stood for in the past, all of that hard work that went into building your reputation and your image can be frittered away very quickly. For example, probably the worst case of brand destruction that I personally observed was General Motors, who at one time earlier in my career was the largest corporation in the world. And it was built on the strength of these family of strong brands, Chevrolet, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Buick, Cadillac, and there were very clear and distinct brand images for all of the brands that General Motors cultivated. And people actually had this aspiration, you know, when I'm young and I don't have a lot of money, I'll start with Chevrolet and then I'll move up as my career and my income grows and maybe I can afford an Oldsmobile and ultimately, oh, I can't wait to buy that Cadillac, which will be the pinnacle of my career. And people actually bought into the brand promise and the trust and the identity with the brand. But then in a kind of suicidal disaster, General Motors, in an effort to save money as foreign competition began to grow, got totally obsessed with cost reduction. And they standardized all the parts and engines and components that went in across all their brands and it made it a lot more efficient to manufacture the products. But suddenly, that whole brand promise of distinctiveness fell apart. And across the board, General Motors brands just weren't appealing anymore and ultimately drove what was the biggest company in in the world into bankruptcy in 2009. They're doing a much better job with a fewer set of brands now to try to restore that brand promise and trust. But it's a long way down from the biggest company in the world to bankruptcy. So you can see how important it is to maintain that value proposition and brand promise. And if my company is moving along and everything is fine, but there's really some revamping that needs to be done and we've got some great ideas, why would I disrupt my company and do a pivot? And if I would, how would I go about it? Well, that is one of the hardest nuts to crack. I was just with a mid-sized company yesterday that's been very, very successful grew from literally the owner starting the business on his kitchen table and it's now got well over 400 employees and been a great run but they're really struggling with finding the next new thing and what's holding them back by and large is fear and this is a pervasive problem the fear is you know we don't want to do anything to upset the apple car we built a very nice business here but it's topped out. Every product has a product life cycle. And if you're lucky enough to have a successful product, you'll grow through some rapid growth. But at some point, both because consumer preferences change and competition is attracted by your success and there's a lot of Me Too products in the market, at some point, you're going to hit the wall and your sales are going to top out at best and probably decline at worst. 
And as soon as you see those signals and you'll sense them and feel them in your sales reports and your financial reports as you kind of keep tabs on your business, you'll sense when you're hitting the wall with the offer you have today. And the only way to sort of get to that re-energize, get to that next stage of growth is to come up with the next new thing that may in fact cannibalize your old business. And that's where the fear comes in. But, you know, if you don't take a step to create the next growth platform, someone else will. And this fear of cannibalization is the most paralyzing fear I see in most small and large companies that keep folks from doing the steps necessary to keep growth going. Yeah, I think the old rules of if it's not broken, don't fix it. That's some really bad advice that just does not apply anymore because it assumes a static environment. Absolutely. Yeah, one other point I would make in terms of pushing to the next level of growth and rethinking what is the brand promise you bring to market is so often you kind of run out of steam with continuing to attract customers with what has worked for you in the past. So, you know, take the men's grooming market, razor blades and shaving products. And, you know, for decades, the industry giant, Gillette, was able to grow for decades on the strength of ever better products. And and when I started shaving as a young man, I had the kind of single blade safety razor, as they called it. And then as I went into college, it was uh, two blades are better than one, and then three, and then four, and then I think we're up to five now in the the top-of-the-line razor products. Well, I mean, how many blades do you need? I mean, (laughs) is the sixth blade going to be so much better than having five blades that that's going to get people to buy a lot more razor? No. So, you know, the question for that industry and for the industry leader, Gillette, is now what? And in fact, the competitors that have created a lot of trouble for the industry leader, Gillette, Dollar Shave Club, and Harry's, said, you know, the issue isn't just always offering a better razor with six, seven, eight blades. It's making the whole simple process of buying razors easier. And so these online competitors came and said, you know, we'll just put you on a subscription plan and every week or every month, fresh set of razors will show up and it's just the easiest thing in the world. And trust me, they're good enough. And that business model, rather than having the extra blade for the better product, has been the real source of growth and market share penetration in that sector. And Gillette was afraid to do that because they didn't want to cannibalize the strong position they had in all of the tens of thousands of stores and that carry their current product. So there you go. Yeah. And so why is it, Len, that companies tend to become so product-centric and lose sight of the problem they're actually solving for the customer, right? I mean, that's such a great example of that. You know, thinking about Christensen's concepts of jobs to be done, right? The job to be done is I need to shave. I don't care how many blades are on the razor. I just need to shave. And I need that to do that as conveniently as possible because I have to do that every day. Mm-hmm. So why do companies not see the obvious opportunity that looks at the job to be done in a very different way? You know, part of it is human nature. I mean, don't argue with success. You know, we're the industry leader. We don't want to do something that might erode our high prices and margins. But at the end of the day, the other thing that keeps a lot of companies back is a very narrow view of who their customers are and who their competitors are. It's a very typical problem that companies, small and large, focus on the customers they're currently selling to and always making their products a little better for their current customers without spending at least as much time on, wait a second, there's a lot more customers we're not selling to than we are. 
what's keeping them from buying our product and how could I appeal to them? So that's problem one is you're looking at the wrong customer. And problem two is you're only looking over your shoulder at the most conventional, typical competitors. And you're worried about stealing share from them and they're worried about stealing share from you. And you get into this kind of feature function arms race where you battle with each other to be you know, just a little bit better than they are. And next thing you know, you've got these expensive, bloated products that deliver a lot more features than real value at prices that are too high for a big part of the market that says, hey, wait a second, I don't want any of that stuff. So really focus hard on who you're not selling to and why. That's where a lot of growth opportunities lie. Don't just steal share from the other guy because that's the non-winnable battle. So in your analysis in the book, you really do a great job of distilling the key ingredients of people's search for the holy grail of sustainable profitability <laughs> and industry leadership. And so mm-hmm. as a business owner, if I'm trying to focus on what you describe as the imperatives for effective strategy, continuous innovation, meaningful differentiation, and business alignment, how can I, as a small business owner, first evaluate what I'm doing to see how I'm doing in those categories? And then, you know, what actions can I take? You know, at some level, the kind of basic prescription that I give in my book of the key ingredients or imperatives for companies that are able to achieve long-term profitable growth, continuous innovation, not just for its own sake, but to deliver meaningfully differentiated products and services. And thirdly, to actually organize your business so that everything about the way you run your business and incentivize your employees and the culture and mindset you build for your company, small or large, it supports that environment which promotes entrepreneurship and constant innovation. At some level, you stand back and say, well, yeah, I mean, but that's commonsensical. I mean, why wouldn't anyone do that? Of course. But it actually turns out to be devilishly difficult. And the reason is, and we've touched on it a bit earlier in our conversation, that it requires you to be kind of a bit ambidextrous to, on the one hand, manage the current business that's kind of paying the rent today with the products you're selling in the marketplace very effectively and very efficiently and doing everything you can to be an effective business operator. And at the same time, it requires you to have an ongoing kind of exploration process for, all right, what's the next new thing? And it's not going to be on the market tomorrow or next month. But unless we're simultaneously working on the current business and the new opportunities, we're going to hit that wall where your current products kind of top out and the product lifecycle catches up with you. And this kind of ambidextrous management of running a current business and being kind of fluid and adaptive enough to also be looking over the horizon, that's what most companies fail to do. And it starts with the leader, the CEO, the boss. It's your job to make sure that both those activities are ongoing and create an environment where all of your employees, starting with yourself, feel comfortable that some of those new opportunities are going to fail. That's the nature of innovation. Don't be afraid to constantly experiment, pilot test, put things out. As I said, I was with a mid-sized company yesterday, and they were bemoaning the fact, you know, we tried a few experiments, and they just didn't go anyplace. And I said, of course they didn't go anyplace. You know, one out of 10 might work. One out of 50 might work. But that's what it takes to keep low-cost experiments and pilot tests and probing, because it only takes a couple of breakthroughs to take you to the next level. 
Len, I know you mentioned the Buffett story about the three boxes on his desk. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit how that applies to a business owner when you're evaluating different opportunities? Yeah, my uh, my hero and the guy that I think kind of sets the best example of a growth-oriented business leader is Jeff Bezos at Amazon. He embodies everything we've been talking about, starting with committing his company, Amazon, to the appropriate business purpose. So everyone knows by now that Jeff Bezos is just obsessed with delivering a superior customer experience. To reinforce that and to instill this passion for serving the customer throughout his organization. He cites a story that comes from Warren Buffett, the famous multi-billionaire investor. And Bezos said that there's a story that goes around that Warren Buffett has three boxes on his desk. He has an inbox, he has an outbox, and he has a two-hard box. And he sort of puts all of his papers in, and some ideas come to Warren Buffett. Oh, this is too hard, and he just sort of throws it in the two-hard box and ignores it. And Bezos' take on that is that any time within Amazon that they find themselves sort of just spinning around and going in circles, not being able to make a decision, instead of just ignoring it, he invokes the tiebreaker to say, well, we're going to make a decision, but the way we're going to do it is to ask ourselves what decision would be best for our customers, and that's the way we're going to go. And I'll just give you one example of how that sort of tiebreaker worked to help them continue to grow. So early in Amazon's development, every product that customers ordered on Amazon came out of Amazon's warehouses and were completely managed by Amazon. And they had a bunch of merchandisers who selected which cameras to sell and which computer PCs to sell. And they stocked them and they sold them. And they were essentially a classic retailer and managed the entire process. And then the idea came up well, why don't we invite third-party merchants to also sell their products on our Amazon website? And there was fierce opposition from Amazon's merchandisers, the people who traditionally had been responsible for deciding which products to sell at what price and, and the like. And they said, well, why would we invite competition into our own business? I mean, that's crazy. And Bezos said, because we can't hope to have the best variety at the best prices for every product under the sun if our ultimate goal is to be kind of the everything store. And it will keep us honest and make sure we're operating at our best. Well, so that was the tiebreaker. Our customers will get better products at better prices. And looking back now 15 years later, they sell more products through third-party merchants, and it's been a bigger source of growth for them than the stuff that they do just on their own. I love that example because, you know, so many people experience Amazon now, which is now ubiquitous with, as you said, pretty much the everything store. And it's almost hard to imagine that that wasn't their strategy from day one. Oh, no, it, it has evolved quite a bit from the humble beginnings of uh, running around and buying books and then stuffing them in boxes on a kitchen <laughs> table. They started as small and humble as, as any other small business, but they've done quite well over the last 20 years. Yeah, and then they continue to grow and continue to innovate precisely because of that commitment. Exactly. So, Len, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. Is there anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners? In addition to the topics we covered in this conversation, I do cover a broader range of some useful suggestions on how to become a cat in your dogfight and continue your growth and profitability. And you can find a lot of that in the book. And in addition, I, from time to time, totally for free, add some ideas and insights on my website and the blog that's contained on my website, which you can find at www.lsherman.com. Our guest today has been Len Sherman. 
You can learn more about Len, along with links to his book and additional information, in our show notes at businessownersradio.com. This episode has been sponsored by Align for Business at Align, the number four, business.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.